1: With Dr. Frank Turek. Ladies and gentlemen, as you know, I go to a lot of college campuses and present, I don't have enough faith to be an atheist. And as you know, about 75%, three out of every four churchgoers, when they go to college, walk away from the church. And only about a third of them return to the church by the time they're age 30. So there's a massive exodus of supposed Christians from the church once they go off to college. And sometimes, obviously, this happens intellectually before they go to college. And as I've said before, as you you hear in the intro, a lot of Christians leave the faith because they've never been talked into it. That's why they're talked out of it. They're never given any evidence, and they're not even prepared to go off to college. Now, a lot of young people are going to graduate from high school in the next couple of months. What are you going to give them before they go off to college? Well, I hope you give them, I don't have enough faith to be an atheist. That's the systematic approach that Dr. Geiser and I have taken to show them why Christianity is true. But it's not just about evidence. There's a lot more that threatens the Christian faith of young people when they go off to college and a young man I had the privilege of meeting recently, uh, actually at a mutual friend's wedding. His name is Austin Gentry. He is a graduate, not only of Chapel Hill, but also Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. He worked with uh, a pastor, J.D. Greer, who has a fabulous church out there in Raleigh, the Raleigh area. I've, I've met J.D. before. I think he's now the president of the Southern Baptist Convention. And uh, Austin, Austin Gentry, has written a new book called 10 Things Every Christian Should Know for College. Now, if you're not going to college, don't tune out yet. Why? Because if you know anybody going to college, uh, and maybe you're a parent, maybe you're a grandparent, maybe you just have a friend who's going to college then this book and the material we're going to talk about in this book or the ideas we're going to talk about from this book will be helpful. In fact, it's going to be helpful for you even if you don't go to college because so much of what Austin talks about here in this book is applicable not just to the college life, but life in general. So we're going to talk about some of these things. And then later in the program, I'm going to get back to some of your questions, but I have Austin on for a few segments here to talk about this, the top 10 things every Christian should know uh, for college. So Austin, it's great having you on the program.
2: Hey, it's great being here. Thanks so much for having me.
1: Now, Austin, you did start at Summit Church, and I know you're, you're you're doing some work down there down there at Second Baptist in Houston with Pastor Ed Young. What are you doing down there for uh, uh, with Pastor Young?
2: Yeah, so uh, I currently serve as the young adults pastor there uh, for their Woodway campus, which is Uh really their first campus after they started building some more uh, satellite campuses. Uh, And the young adult pastor role is essentially a role where I'm reaching 20s and 30s, um, and mostly single. So right out of college to around 34. That's kind of the age range that I've been assigned to kind of pastor
1: there. Okay. So you went to Chapel Hill originally, you graduated in 2014 from there. You are, you're going to tell Mm -hmm. us a story about an experience you had with Bart Ehrman here in a minute, the, uh, the famous skeptic, uh, pastor, a pastor, famous skeptic professor there. Uh, but before we get there, tell me why you decided to write this book, 10 things every Christian should know for college.
2: Yeah, yeah, definitely. So, uh, So really, I never planned on just sitting down and writing this book. I've been writing for about uh, really my whole life. I've loved writing. I've loved teaching. It's kind of always been a passion of mine. And I've kept a blog going for about eight or nine years now. Mm -hmm. And uh, to be 100% honest with you, I do not get many reads on my blog. Maybe a mom, dad, friend here or there, uh, you know, not much at all. But there was one post I I read, I, I wrote about, uh, in the fall of 2016. Um, and I just named it like eight pointers for a Christian who's going off to to college at a secular university, something like that. And uh, I kind of, you know, finished it, pressed send and, uh, you know, didn't check it anytime soon. I think the next day I logged back into my blog site and realized that the thing had kind of taken off. Um, you know hundreds, maybe thousands even of of clicks and shares um and I was getting all these random emails from professors or not professors uh headmasters of Christian mm-hmm. schools that were saying oh hey we, we sent this we we found it online and we sent this to our uh our our listserv of seniors who are about to graduate, and you know parents kind of chiming in um and so all, all that to say is i guess some of the things that I'd said in some way resonated or just needed to be said struck record mm-hmm. uh for kids who are going off to school and and I thought you know." maybe i should expand it. if that many people are going to read it maybe i should do each pointer justice and you know not give it just a paragraph but maybe several paragraphs, you know, to to address each pointer, you know, adequately. And then that kind of just turned into a book as I kept building on each pointer, each one became a chapter, if you will. And that's how you get 10 things every Christian should know for college. All right.
1: All right. Let's start with the first thing here that you mentioned in the book. In fact, uh, chapter one says your professor is smart, but not omniscient. And you go in here, uh, I read through this here this morning, and you are talking here about the fact that, uh, the, you say that your professor is certainly smart, but there are other scholars in his field of study who are just as smart as he is who may fundamentally disagree with his conclusions. Unpack that for us. Why are you saying that?
2: Sure. Um, so I, I remember, you know, going to a classroom and I went to a Christian school, K through 12, and I grew up at the church. So if there was a Christian bubble that I could have lived in, that was that was me. I was dead in the middle. And so I, when I went to school, I started hearing, or went to Chapel Hill, I started hearing, you know, these claims that I'd never heard of before. And, you know, well, that guy has a PhD on the end of his name. So certainly he has a reason for saying that. And certainly he's just not saying that arbitrarily. Certainly there's some kind of substance here. But then I would go to another class with the same-ish topic. And then I would hear a different conclusion. And I'm like, well, now, wait a second here. Like, these are both PhD professors. They're both approaching very similar content and then getting different conclusions. Mm. And then what I realize is... uh, in a way in a way uh the deck is stacked when it comes to scholarship because whenever you hear scholarship especially at a university level that doesn't necessarily mean that it's right it just means that it's relevant you know um so if if there's something if there's research about a particular field of study there's a lot of findings on it uh some of which that are old some of which that are new some of which that contradict each other some of which that's just still being hashed out and no one has a clear conclusion on it And so because of that the teacher is really able to more or less pick which side they feel more convinced in. Um, And whatever reason they feel more convinced in is more or less a personal decision, or maybe it's just the university's historic stance on it. I don't know. Um, But that's, that's in a nutshell, I think why you can get different conclusions. And I I think also that goes to some, some deeper spiritual issues to it on some topics as well, if the professor's a Christian or not.
1: And you point out here in the chapter, and again, we're talking to Austin Gentry, his book, 10 Things Every Christian Should Know for College. So if you're not going to college, this is still relevant. Why? Because you may know people going to college. And some of the things Austin talks about in this book are true for everyone, regardless of whether you're in school or not. But the point here is, uh, as as you point out, Austin, is that there's a difference between uh, evidence and the interpretation that you take from that evidence. And first of all, you've got to make sure that the evidence or the data you're looking at is accurate. You just mentioned sometimes there's conflicting data out there and you're not quite sure what to believe. I think the main gist of what you're saying here in this chapter that I take away from it anyway is you may go to a, a place like Chapel Hill like you did and you might have someone like Bart Ehrman who's trying to tell you that the Bible can't be trusted. But you can go to another scholar who's equally as as credentialed as Bart Ehrman who It looks at the same data and comes to the opposite conclusion of Ehrman. Now, you might ask yourself the question, well, why is that? Because the data is different from the inference you might draw from that data. And so this chapter that you've written here, again, the book is called Ten Things Every Christian Should Know for College. This first chapter is critically important, young people. When you go off to college and you just hear your professor hammering Christianity and some of the aspects of Christianity don't get too alarmed, because there may be reasons he's drawing different inferences from another scholar who actually says the evidence actually points in the other direction. So, it's, it's critical that you know that when you go off to college, and it's critical that the rest of us know that when we're hearing about certain things on the internet or certain things out in our culture, there's always another side. In fact, there's a proverb that says, someone who says something seems right in what he's saying until you hear the other side. You always got to hear the other side both ways. Anyway, you're listening to Cross-Examine with Frank Turk on the American Family Radio Network, our website, crossexamine.org. Ten things every Christian should know for college. We're back in two. Don't go away.
0: Thank you for listening to the Cross-Examined podcast. This material is made available to you for free by the contributions of listeners like you. If you wish to support future podcasts, just go to crossexamine.org and click on the Donate button or simply use the Donate feature directly on our app. Thanks. The University of
1: Memphis this Monday night, University Center Theater, I think it's called details are on our website 7 to 9 p.m. central time if you're anywhere near Memphis this is open to the public we're doing I don't have enough faith to be an atheist and uh, we'll have q and time for QA if you can't be there we plan on streaming it go to our website CrossExamine.org. that's cross-examined with a d on the end of it org and or our web our, our, sorry our, our Facebook pages uh, cross or dr Frank Turk we'll try and stream it all those places so you can see it. And uh, please pray that event goes well. We uh, always want to be uh, bringing the truth to young people. We want to encourage the Christians. We want to put a stone in the shoe of the skeptics. And who knows, maybe even someone can come to Christ at one of these meetings. We we did one back at uh, Towson uh, back in October. and We had eight people come to Christ. I didn't even know it until two weeks later because it was the the, the crew leader there who brought us in who uh, Larry Kelly, who uh, who took a survey after the thing was over and found that out. So uh, we're we're not there giving some big emotional appeal. We're just giving people the evidence and saying, look, you got to make a decision at some point. And apparently eight people out of about 200 or so, they were all students, made a decision that night. So pray for those events, if you would. And then the following week, I'm going to be down in the Dallas, Texas area. We'll do UT Dallas on Thursday night. Uh, The actual date is Stand by, I'm bringing it up It's the 28th of March And then UT Arlington noon A noon event at UT Arlington Uh, that, um, next day, Friday, the, what is that? Is that, oh, that's the 29th. Obviously dumb looking at the wrong calendar. Uh, and then we're going to have an event, the atheist Christian book club. I don't know if you can actually get into that, but the details are on our website. We're talking about, uh, my book stealing from God with a bunch of atheists there. Uh, and then the next day, if you haven't, if, if you don't even know about the rethink, you got to know about it. Actually rethink starts the 29th at Cottonwood Creek, Baptist Church there in Allen, Texas. It starts March 29th. It's not just me, it's uh, the folks from Stand to Reason putting it on. So you've got Greg Kokel, you've got uh, you've got Alan Schliemann, you've got Tim Barnett, and others are going to be presenting there. And that's an, a weekend thing. It's, it's Friday night, all day Saturday, and there's over a thousand people, young people signed up already. You want to check that out. Uh, RethinkApologetics.com. And then uh, the next day I'll be speaking at Cottonwood Creek Baptist Church on the Sunday morning services. So a lot going on in Dallas the following week, but Memphis on the 18th. All right, let me go back to my friend here, Austin Gentry, Gentry, who's written the the new book, 10 Things Every Christian Should Know for College. Now, Austin, you did go to Chapel Hill. Uh, Did you sit under Bart Ehrman at all?
2: Yes and no. Uh, No, in the sense that I did not officially, uh, I was not officially enrolled in his class, but uh, yes, in the sense that I would uh, sometimes just kind of stop in. He he allows students to, to come into some of his classes, especially the one at the end of the year where he gives his anti-testimony. You know, if you're in Christian mm. circles, you hear the word testimony as you're coming to faith. Well, he gives his anti-testimony at the end of the year, which is how he abandoned his faith. And many students want to hear his own story about how that happened in his own life.
1: It's interesting because you relate in the book. And I, I've heard this by listening to some of Bart's lectures, that despite the fact that he talks about what he thinks are errors in the text, that not only does he say that we know what the original New Testament writers wrote down, but he also says that none of those supposed errors that he believes are in the text had anything to do with him rejecting Christianity, right? Right. I mean, he spends most of his time talking about whether well, there's errors in the in, in the uh, manuscript. So we're unsure about certain places in the New Testament. Um, but he never says that that creates any trouble for him intellectually. His real reason for not becoming a Christian or, or leaving Christianity, in his view, is what?
2: Was really the reality of pain and suffering and how he feels that that's irreconcilable from the reality of a loving, all powerful God.
1: Hmm. Mm-hmm. I wonder if he's ever been challenged on that with regard to evil. I mean, why does he think pain, suffering and evil are bad things unless he has some standard of good by which to even judge those things? Has that ever been brought up to him philosophically? Yeah. Do you know?
2: Yeah, th- there's this book. I think it's called Stealing from God, where, where the author, a smart ah. guy, by the way, <laughs> makes a, uh, makes no, a not, point about <laughs> how atheists But, atheist. know. No, but when, seriously, use the The assumptions that God has to exist to almost try to assert their own point, and um, yeah, that's what he's doing in, in a way. I, he can't I, call it evil; he has to call it bad luck.
1: Oh, I know, I know. I've mentioned that in many before me have, but <laughs> I'm wondering. I'm wondering if you've ever seen him, because I haven't seen everything he's done or every debate he's had. Has he ever been challenged on that? To your To say, well, look, you're claiming there's all this evil in the world, but how do you even know there's evil unless there's good? And how do you know there's good unless God exists? I mean, God is what we mean by the standard of good.
2: Yeah, um, I'm not sure specifically. Um, I didn't get the chance to ask him that directly, uh, but I have had some conversations with him, though.
1: Now, by the way, you did recommend in the book today a website that – and again, the book is called 10 Things Every Christian Should Know for College. By the way, this book, anybody can understand. It's very well written by Austin Gentry, my guest today, and it's got some very good insights. It's not just about evidence here. There's so much more than evidence that you need to deal with when you go off to college or you need to help a college student through. And we're going to talk about more of that here in just a minute. Um, But – Austin, you know, when you get older, you start to lose your train of uh, train of. Nope. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Well, you're not old. That's <laughs> why I'm losing it here. I was going somewhere <laughs> with this comment, but I forgot where I was going. All right. Let me just go back to the book. Um, the book here uh, in pointer number two This is kind of chapter number two. And this is absolutely critical. What you say here, the title of the chapter is the heart dwells beneath the intellect, the logic and the evidence. Unpack that for us.
2: Sure. So uh, essentially, I, I give the analogy that um, when you're presented with a lot of data, the immediate temptation is not to see the data as the data, but rather to see the data for what you want it to be yourself. Um, mm-hmm. So it, it's kind of like uh, there's an undercurrent in the ocean that even though there's a, a big body of water, there's a certain direction that it's being pulled underneath and you don't see it. But if you, you know, throw a beach ball in it, it's going to start pulling that way for the undertow reason. Maybe issues like, you know, I don't, I, I'm not a marine biologist. I'm not going to try to hash all the particularities of that analogy. But nevertheless, we do the same thing when we're presented with evidence or, or logic or reasoning. There's something underneath that to us that makes us pull in some different way because of our preferences. And we need to be, we need to watch out for that whenever data is first presented to us. We
1: need to watch out for that, too, because Mm -hmm. as the atheist uh, physicist uh, Richard Feynman said, the easiest person to fool is yourself. Right. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. And sometimes Christians just want evidence to support their view. And maybe it doesn't. But you're Mm -hmm. also saying that's the same thing is true for atheists who are scholars at the college campus. And people need to understand that, that. As we mentioned earlier, sometimes it's the inference from the evidence that is the real issue. Everyone's looking at the same data quite frequently. The question is, how do they interpret it? And of course, you quote 2 Timothy 4.3 here when you say, for the time will come, Paul is saying this, obviously, for the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. Well, gee, isn't that true? Now, this is a warning to Christians and non-Christians. Are we just believing what we want to believe? Well,
2: yeah. Yeah. I I mean, I try to make make that clear in the book that where, you know, this goes to all people, you know, truth is truth. It's not just Christian truth, you know, mm -hmm. and I think where Christians are distinct is that our calling is to submit to truth and not to twist it or to distort it or to stand above it or to change it in a way that is more palatable Mm -hmm. for us, but is to submit to it on its own terms and to be honest with what we see.
1: Yeah, Solomon says in Proverbs 4.28, I think it is, he says, um, guard your heart because everything you do flows from it. And you you quote here Thomas Cranmer, an English reformer, and this is a great quote. I have it highlighted here. You say, what the heart loves, the will chooses, and the mind justifies. Listen to that again, friends. What the heart loves, the will chooses, and the mind justifies. This is a warning to all of us, not just atheists, but to Christians as well. Are you just justifying Christianity because you love the idea of there being a God who died for you and and you'll see your loved ones in him in heaven when you die and all that? And, or is it really true? Is there real evidence out there for it that you can evaluate in an objective way or as objectively as possible? So this uh, chapter two of 10 things every Christian should know for college is absolutely critical to understand young people. When you go to college, you got to remember there are agendas and quite frequently the agendas, as you point out, Austin, in here have to do with personal autonomy and sexual issues. That's why I always ask the question, if Christianity were true, would you become a Christian? And so many people have said no, because it has nothing to do with the evidence in their minds. It has to do with what they want to do sexually or what they want to do with their own lives. Now, when, when yeah. you were coming through Chapel Hill, how how often did you notice that the agenda had not much to do with evidence, but everything to do with their own personal autonomy and happiness? Was that common?
2: Uh, yes, absolutely. And, and it, I think it really is a trickle down effect. Um, not, not to say that one person is to blame for it more than another, because this mm-hmm. is something we're all guilty of. But going back to the issue of Bart Ehrman in particular, that's, that's essentially where I first saw it, at least in a formal setting. This was, this was the, the tenured head of the religion part, department saying, you know, I rejected Christianity because of its stance on evil and suffering, which I don't like. And yet I'm the whole reason I'm trying to take down Christianity is through intellectual means like, Oh, by the way, uh, there's errors in the Bible. And Oh, by Mm -hmm. the way, you can't trust it because of this. But really the main issue was never, like you said, any of those quote unquote intellectual things. It was all about the heart of the issue underneath that, that wanted him to arrive at a certain conclusion. He doesn't want to believe in a God who is really beyond his understanding. He doesn't want that. And so that it, Led his, like an undercurrent, his intellectual convictions down a certain path. And you see that with lots of students too, maybe not in a formal classroom setting, but in the dorm room. You know, they want a certain lifestyle, whether that be sexually or, or, you know, other things. Let's just be clear. Christianity has many stances that are not exactly palatable at the university environment, things like gender and sexuality, things like heaven and hell, things like, you know, that doesn't like rub people the right way, especially in our climate now. And so Mm -hmm. to, to believe in objections So that you don't immediately, so that you don't have to believe in those things in the Bible. It it allows people the freedom to kind of experiment with lifestyle decisions because, well, intellectually, I'm not going to subscribe to that right now. It it alleviates that conflict. That makes sense.
1: Yeah, no, it certainly does. And you point that out clearly. And again, we're talking to Austin Gentry, his book, Ten Things Every Christian Should Know for College. And we've only co- talked about a couple of them. There's eight more. We'll cover one or two more of them in the next segment, so don't go anywhere. But before we get there, I want to point out that CIA, the cross Examine Instructor Academy, is coming to the Big Apple. That's right, New York City, August 8th to 10th. you got to apply now, though, uh, because we're, this class will fill up. We get maybe 60 people in there. We can't go much bigger than that because not only do, you pre- or do we present to you, you present to us, Greg Kokel, myself, David Woods. The expert on Islam will be there. Um, so many other instructors. you got to go to our website, crossexamine.org, for more. And I'm back in just two. Don't go away. College campuses are hostile to the Christian faith. And three out of four young people walk away from the church once they go to college. That's why we go to college campuses and present, I don't have enough faith to be an atheist. In the United States and even all over the world, when we do this, We don't charge students a dime. That's why we need your financial support. In fact, over the past couple of years, we've been able to grow dramatically because of your generous support. And 100% of your donations go to ministry. Zero percent go to building. So when you give to Cross-Examined, you'll be giving to help us go reach young people where they are. Would you consider giving today? Thank you so much. And thank you so much for what you've done already. Ten things every Christian should know for college. A student's guide to doubt community and identity. But actually, adults can benefit from this. Trust me. His name is Austin Gentry. He's a graduate of Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. He's worked at two very prominent churches, one summit out there in Raleigh, another one Second Baptist down in Houston. He's dealing with young adults now, and this book will help uh, with young adults. Now, Austin, uh, you have a chapter in here also on doubts, and uh, you made a key point here about what conservatives, conservative churches, or how conservative churches deal with doubt. Unpack that for us.
2: Yeah, uh, d- definitely. So um, doubt, I think, is perhaps one of the most relevant uh, realities of the college experience. Even if you go to a Christian school, I think doubt is a very you know real thing you run into. I ran into it when I went to uh, UNC Chapel Hill. Um, and so doubt really, though, I, growing up in a church that was great, I always had in my own mind that doubt was something that I should be ashamed of. Doubt was something that was a weakness. Doubt was something that I couldn't be vulnerable about because then people would think less of me. And Mm. so because of that, that kind of culture or, or my wrong way of thinking exacerbated doubt's effect on my own life. And so it didn't allow me to walk through doubt constructively. It allowed me it allowed doubt to really, you know, have its hold on me.
1: And it wasn't a safe place in your conservative church to ask questions, was it?
2: Well, I wouldn't say that about the church. Maybe that was just the way that I thought about it myself. I thought okay. that, you know, I would be less of a Christian if I didn't if mm-hmm. I expressed my doubts, that kind of thing.
1: I love what that's the
2: thing. Oh go, no, ahead. go ahead. I'm sorry.
1: No, I was just gonna I was say sorry, I...
2: but...
1: You go, you go.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I was just gonna say I, I think Don't doubt me. You there go. are many <laughs> there, there are many churches though, I think, that uh, promote a culture of of where you do have to look like your life is quote unquote, put together as a Christian. And, and I know many friends who went off to college feeling like they weren't able to open up about their doubts because who knows what my church will think about me? Who knows what my parents will think about me, you know? And so it, it kept them stuck in the hole. It didn't help constructively getting them out of it.
1: Yeah, I was I love what Robbie, Robbie Zacharias said. We, we were at a conference together out in Nashville and someone asked him the question, do you have doubts? And what he said is, I don't really have doubts, but I have a lot of questions. Mm. And I I think that's a good distinction because, well, you, you may have doubts, but you could also have questions like if I could get an answer to this question, then what I think might be a doubt could go away. The problem is in many churches, we don't make it safe to ask questions because, as you just said, we make it seem like if you have questions or you have doubts that somehow you're less of a Christian. And I don't know where they get that from. Maybe they're getting it from the book of James. You know, you don't want to be double minded and be tossed back and forth. But on the other hand, we're also supposed to love God with all our minds. And we're supposed to always be ready to have an answer for the reason that we hope we have. Well, we can't have answers unless we ask questions and 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 get answers <laughs> to the questions yeah. that we have. So. We have to be able to investigate the faith and investigate the questions that we have. I love something William Lane Craig said. He said, if you have a doubt or a question, you need to drill that thing into the ground. You need to research it so many different ways that you're satisfied ultimately with the answer. Now, there'll be some questions we can't we can completely answer, but we ought to try and investigate those questions. And saying that you ought not have doubts doesn't help the situation. What happens is, as you point out in the book... When young people go out off to college and and their questions weren't answered back at home, they might be apt just to walk away then. They think, well, there's no answers to this. I've asked for answers and I haven't gotten any. So it's very important, the chapter that you have in here on doubt. Again, the book is called 10 Things Every Christian Should Know for College. Now you say, another great point you have in here, this is in chapter five, the fact that the resurrection is sort of the central point or the central fact of Christianity. If the resurrection is true, Austin, what does that say about the lesser questions we have or the lesser doubts that we have?
2: Yeah, Absolutely. That's, that's a great point. So I, I think ultimately we're starting on the wrong foot if we think that our faith more or less looks like a Jenga tower, where every single tenet of our faith is held on equal proportion and everything is equally important. But that's just not true. There are some Mm -hmm. things in the Christian faith that are more important than others and more fundamental than others. For example, uh, the resurrection of Christ is perhaps the most important or fundamental aspect of, of our Christian faith. And then you have like the Trinity or the atonement or, you know, many things that are absolutely crucial. And then you have issues like, you know, the age of the earth or how to baptize someone mm. that just doesn't hold as much weight as those other things do. And so unfortunately, uh, you know, many people, I think, or many Christians going to college, they see their faith as a, a Jenga tower of sorts. And when a professor says one thing about one tenet of their faith, that makes no sense to them or something they don't immediately have the answer for, it seems as if they're pulling a, a block in a Jenga tower and it all comes tumbling down. Like, oh, you know, you can't trust that uh, Moses wrote the Old Testament because we think it was two people. Oh no, I don't know what to do. And then they, you know, their whole Jenga tower just falls down. I know I can't believe any of it, you know, but, but really your Christian faith looks more like a pyramid instead, but, you know, based on tiers of importance where at the very bottom you have, you know, the resurrection, the Trinity, the atonement, um, the most fundamental important things of your faith. And then on top of that are built smaller, uh, less important uh, convictions or fundamental tenets, And those kind of are based on the bigger ones like the Trinity. And so just think about a Jenga tower versus a pyramid. If you're in a windstorm, you know, your bet's going to go with the pyramid every time.
1: Yeah, that's one of the things my friend Andy Stanley tries to point out. He takes a lot of heat for it, but he says, one of the problems we have, if we're trying to witness to unbelievers and we go to them and we say, well, the reason you ought to believe in Christianity is because the Bible's inerrant. First of all, that's begging the question. But secondly, a lot of people think that, you I mean, I got to believe everything in the whole Bible in order to be a Christian? Well, look, I think the... Uh, I think the earth is is old or the universe is old and the, the Bible appears anyway to be teaching it's young, they'll say. Or, gee, I don't know if I can believe in Jonah or Noah or some of the stuff that went on in the Old Testament. Uh, or, or, or as you just said, a, a problem with Moses of some kind. And then they wind up walking away from all of Christianity. When in fact, you don't have to believe everything in the Bible to be a Christian. Now, I think, If you do become a Christian and you think about it long enough, you will believe everything in the Bible because Jesus did. And look, I just have a personal policy. If somebody rises from the dead, I just believe whatever the guy says. I mean, if Jesus really is God and proved he was God, then what he teaches about the Old Testament is true. And he taught the Old Testament was true. And if God exists, of course, any of those things in the Old Testament could have actually occurred. Uh, You can't just rule them out. So I think the point you're making here in chapter five about the resurrection being key is correct that if the resurrection occurred, everything else falls into place. So we don't start with, you got to believe the Bible's true. We start with the evidence that the resurrection occurred. We may back yep. up and start with the evidence for God, as you point out, but then deal with the resurrection. If the resurrection's true, our lesser doubts or our lesser concerns about lesser issues can be easily overcome by the fact of the resurrection, because if Jesus rose from the dead, everything else falls into place. Now, Austin, I want to get to the last chapter in your book, and there's so many chapters we can't cover here on radio, obviously. We don't have time, Mm -hmm. but you want to get the book, friends. It's called 10 Things Every Christian Should Know for College. The author is Austin Gentry. Identity is such a big issue in our culture today, Austin. You have an entire chapter on it. Kind of sum it up for us.
2: Absolutely. Yes. So identity, you know, it might even be a buzzword in some sense, uh, even in churches. But I think I try, I try to redefine identity as essentially the place where you find your sense of worth, where you find your sense of significance, validation, security, all those things. And uh, especially at the college level, this is an issue for everyone, you know, myself included in any stage of life. Uh, but in the college um, Setting in in particular, your identity is always I think on the line. You know where do you find yourself worth? Well, I find it in my major, obviously, or I find it in my romantic relationship, or I find it in my fraternity. And if I don't have that, then I'm less of a person. You know, and so mm-hmm. it, you're enslaved to these aspects of performance and and circumstance, which you're never really fully in control of. And so you end up being a slave to those things if if they're the wrong ones.
1: And. You point out very well here in the chapter that our identity is not really um, achieved, it's received. I don't mm-hmm. think you use those exact words. I, I might be channeling I, like that, I might be channeling Tim Keller from here <laughs> right now. I think, <laughs> I think Tim had said that at one point and you quote Tim Keller in this book as well. I do. But it is true that your identity is received. It's not achieved. And if you try and achieve it, you have three things in this in, in this chapter, and maybe you can go through them very quickly, Austin. What are the problems of putting your identity in achievements rather than just receiving your identity from Christ? What are the problems it creates in a college person's life or any of our lives?
2: Hmm. Yeah, so I think one of the first problems that you run into is that you're always going to inevitably going to be comparing yourself with everyone else. Mm-hmm. And it's not really about how well you're doing. It's really about how well you're doing compared to everyone else. Because if you find an edge, then that's what's going to make you feel like you're more important or more significant, or that's where you feel like you have value versus other people. Um, so, one, I think you're going to run into uh, this dead end of if you think you're measuring up better than everyone else, well, then that naturally just leads to pride and self-righteousness. And if you aren't measuring up to everyone else, then that just naturally leads to insecurity and despair. So it's it's a moral dead end anyway. You're always going to be oscillating between those two extremes. So that's one point. I think another point is when you base your self-worth on your performance or, or your significance or, or on your circumstances, it's always going to make those failures and disappointments way worse than they actually are. For example, if your self-worth is tied to uh, you being a business major and then you get denied from the business school, it is not just a a hit on you getting out of the business school. It's also, well, you're not that important of a person. You see Mm -hmm. how when you conflate your identity and... And that thing that you're looking forward to to make you feel significant, when it doesn't happen, it's not just a rejection. It's a rejection on your existence, you know, or 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 a breakup, for example. If your identity, if your self worth is found in being in a romantic relationship with that person, and things don't work out, then it's not just a breakup. It's way worse. It's maybe you're not that important after all. But what's wrong with you? You know, it's a lie that just gets you know enhanced uh, more than it should be. Uh, and then I think the third thing is, uh, and I, I see this everywhere, especially on the college campus, it's it's, it's very sad, uh, but when you base your self-worth on your performance, you might just end up pursuing a career path that you never should have pursued after all. Uh, mm. I saw this uh, in so many of my friends, actually, um, and and they know that after being burnt out, you know, being several years out of college, where they feel like in order to have self-worth, they have to be a doctor, they have to be a lawyer, mm-hmm. and if they don't be a doctor or a lawyer then obviously they failed. And, uh, you know, certainly I wouldn't be a social worker because in our culture to be a doctor means you're way more important. And that's just mm. not true. That, that's right. that's a horrible thing to think. And especially if you're gifted, if God made you to be a writer and an artist, you should not be a lawyer, <laughs> like mm-hmm. especially for the people that you're defending. They don't want you representing <laughs> them, you know, <laughs> like that's, that's just right. not fair. So So when you're looking for your self worth, you can't do that
1: you got to find it in Christ, and that's what you say in the final chapter of this Mm -hmm. book, Austin. Austin, we're out of time, but thanks so much for being on the program. Great book.
2: Absolutely. Thanks for having me. It was a pleasure.
1: All right. That's Austin Gentry. His book is 10 Things Every Christian Should Know for College. And I'll talk a little bit more about identity after the break and get to some of your questions. Don't go away. I'm Frank Turek. You're listening to Cross-Examine with Frank Turek on the American Family Radio Network. We're back in just two
0: minutes. If you find value in the content of this podcast, don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, where you can find more. Just type cross examine or Frank Turek on the search bar. Also, visit our website where we add new videos, articles, and free resources daily.
1: Welcome back to Cross-Examined with Frank Turek on the American Family Radio Network. Don't forget about our website, crossexamined.org, and our app. Two words in the app store, cross-examined. Two words in the app store, cross-examined. Got an email here from Noah, uh, very complimentary. Let me just get to his question. He says, my question is this. If you need evidence to have faith in God, do you actually have faith? I recently got into a discussion with a former friend of mine online who who was also a Christian, and they said that Christians... We're not called to prove God's existence because belief in him comes from faith alone. I showed them 1 Peter 3.15, but they were quick to tell me that the evidence comes from faith, not the other way around. I did my best to remain calm and civil and even tried asking a variant of Christianity were true. The true question, but in the end, they blocked me. (laughs) I could use some help. Okay, well, let me just say this, Noah. If people are blocking you, you're not going to get anywhere with them anyway, but let's just deal with their question, regardless of whether or not you're going to have an opportunity to interact with these people again. Uh, It seems to me this, I'm trying to read between the lines here. This seems to be a very Calvinistic kind of approach uh, that says that belief in him comes from faith alone. Now, what do they mean by faith? Because it seems to me they're using a kind of definition of faith that means you don't have any evidence. That's not the kind of faith that the Bible is talking about. In fact, there are two kinds of faith. There's a belief that and then there's belief in belief that is getting evidence that God exists, that Jesus rose from the dead, that the Bible is telling the truth. That's what we call Apologetics doesn't mean we're saying we're sorry. As you know, it means we're giving evidence it comes from the Greek word apologia, which means to give evidence or to, or to make a defense, if you will. But all the belief that in the world won't get your moral transgressions forgiven for that. You've got to go from belief that to belief in to trust in. In fact, the word we ought to be using today is not faith. It should be the word trust. That's what it means in Greek. That's what it means today, because today, as it seems the people who are arguing with you here, Noah, today, these people think that faith means blind faith, that you don't have any evidence at all. Kind of like the Mark Twain version of faith faith is believing what you know ain't so. Uh, that's not the kind of faith the Bible's talking about. It's saying to trust in. What you have good reason to believe is true. That's really what faith is trusting in what you have good reason to believe is true. As I say in the seminars that I give on campus, as I say, I'll be at the University of Memphis this week, uh, this Monday. Um, I, I, I say, look, we know the difference between belief that and belief in from relationships. When I first met my wife 34 years ago, I got evidence that she would be a good wife, but all the evidence in the world didn't make her my wife. I had to take a step of trust in her to ask her to be my wife. And in a momentary lapse of judgment, she said, yes. See, that's the difference between belief that and belief in. The demons know that God exists, James says, but they don't trust in him. They don't go from belief that to belief in, to trust in, you see, belief that is of the mind purely, but belief in is not only of the mind, it's of the heart as well. it, it, It entails your will. You can believe that something's true and not assent to it. In fact, it goes back to our earlier conversation I had with Austin Gentry and his book. Some scholars are looking at the same evidence other scholars are looking at, and they all believe that the evidence is true. But they don't put their faith in it or they don't trust in the inference that naturally flows from it because they don't want to. They have other considerations that they're taking into account. So there's a difference between belief that and belief in. Now it's interesting the people Noah that are writing you this question are trying to give you arguments that you ought not use arguments. They're trying to use arguments. When they say something like Christians were not called to prove God's existence because belief in him comes from faith alone. Well, that's an argument. They're giving you reasons not to use reasons. Now, it turns out to be a self-defeating argument. (laughs) But or it's self-defeating to say we ought not use arguments because you're trying to use an argument right now. So, yes, we're supposed to have evidence for what we believe in. And by the way, this is exactly to keep using by the way again. By the way there, I'm using by the way again. You notice that? Anyway, sorry, I'm transitioning. You go to John's gospel. He tells us why he writes the gospel. Second to last chapter after the resurrection account, after Jesus appears to Thomas, who goes from belief that to belief in after he gets the evidence. Here's what. John says, chapter 20, verse 30. Jesus performed many other signs. Time out. Let's not go any further. Time out. What does does signs mean? What do signs do? Signs point to something else. You know, you're driving into Charlotte. You see a sign, Charlotte, 10 miles. Well, the sign isn't isn't Charlotte. The sign is pointing to something else. The location known as Charlotte. Well, signs that Jesus performs are pointing to the fact that he's the Messiah. So it says Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So the signs give you evidence that you can trust that Jesus is, is the Messiah that you have evidence that Jesus is the Messiah. So you can then go from belief that to belief in and have life in his name. So he puts belief that and belief in, in one verse or two verses here. That's the purpose of the signs. I mean, why doesn't uh, the Bible just say, well, there's no, nobody said the resurrection occurred, but just believe that it's true and just, or just believe in it. Why, why doesn't it just say that? Why when uh, a, a people, uh, well, easy for me to say, why does a person come to Jesus as a messenger from John the Baptist who's in prison and is doubting that Jesus is the Messiah? When, when that person comes to Jesus and says, John is wondering, are you really the Messiah? Jesus doesn't say, just have faith. God will give you the faith. Don't worry about it. Tell John just to have faith. God's going to give it to him. No, he doesn't say that. What does he say? He says, look at the signs. Look at the evidence. In other words, those signs will show you I am the Messiah. So I find it amusing when people try and use arguments to not use arguments. But that's what's going on here, Noah. Now, it doesn't appear that these people are interested in what you have to say. That's fine. Kick the dust off your sandals and go to somebody else and you know, just pray for these people and move on. All right. Now, let me say one other thing about identity that we talked about in our final segment with Austin. A couple of weeks ago, I had the privilege of uh, not only speaking at a, a college in in Ohio, but speaking at a prison in Ohio. And I was supposed to speak to two groups of inmates. And I had the opportunity to do that. But when I got there, uh, the chaplain said, you know... Would you like to speak to a third group? The people in solitary confinement would like to hear you. I said, sure, bring them up. They call it the hole in a prison. If you're in solitary confinement, you're in the hole. Some of them are in there for some of the things they've done. Others are in there to protect them from other people. Solitary confinement can protect you from other inmates who want to do harm to you. Anyway, they brought these gentlemen up and uh, we had maybe about 30 of them in this classroom at this prison And they were wearing, they were wearing neon orange pants and the classic inmate shirt, you know, with the stripes that go horizontally, the big stripes, but it wasn't white and black. It was orange and white. I mean, you could see these people from space if they ever somehow got out of the prison. In any event, they all came in and they sat down. And some of them had tattoos on their faces. I mean, they look like MS-13, some of them. Some of them may have been a little strung out because drugs get into the prison. Others were paying a lot of attention. In fact, when I got done with the entire thing, a bunch of them said, hey, man, this makes sense. I was just going through the four questions we go through on a college campus. Does truth exist? Does God exist? Are miracles possible? Is the New Testament true when it comes to the resurrection? In any event, at the end of it, I said to him, your identity is not achieved. Your identity is received. And by the way, this goes for all of us. Our identity is not what we achieve. Our identity is not in our job or in our in our bank account or it's not in our associations, whether it's our ethnic group, our race. By the way, there's only one race, the human race or our sexual orientation or Uh, who we prefer sexually, or our spouse, or our kids, or our family, or any of these things. That's not our primary identity. Now, some of those things may be important, don't get me wrong, but I'm simply saying that our ultimate identity is not in our achievements. It's not in what we achieve. It's in what we receive, and everybody has the opportunity to receive it. In fact, what I said to these inmates is that you can have the same identity that people on the outside have. Because none of us are getting to God based on our achievements. We're getting to God based on what his achievement was. And that was coming to earth, adding flesh to his deity, living the perfect life, taking all of our punishment on himself And therefore, not just by believing that he's done that, but by trusting in him for what he's done, you can not only be forgiven, you can be given his righteousness. In other words, you're not only forgiven for what you've done, you've received the righteousness of Christ. So put your identity in Christ, because that's where it is. In fact, it's already there. You just need to recognize it. Now, if you don't want to recognize it or you don't want to accept it, God's not going to force you into heaven against your will. That's what love does. It allows people to go their own way, ultimately, because you can't force somebody to love you. But if you truly do want to be loved, you will be. You just need to receive it you don't achieve it. And as my guest Austin was saying earlier, Austin Gentry was saying earlier that if you try and place your identity in your achievements, you're ultimately going to be dissatisfied and you're always going to be comparing yourselves to others. You're always going to be insecure. You're not going to be somebody who's going to be content and you're going to be separated from God for all eternity by your own choice. So, receive your identity don't achieve it all right i'm frank turk great being with you don't forget university of memphis monday night and the following week university of texas at dallas and university of texas at arlington and rethink in dallas see you next time god bless
0: we hope you got a lot of value out of this episode if you think our podcast needs to reach more people here's what you can do to help Go to iTunes and type cross examined official podcast, four words in the search bar, and leave us a five star rating. It'll take you less than five seconds. And if you have a few more seconds to spare, leave us a positive review. The best reviews will be featured on future episodes. You can also listen on Spotify, Stitcher, and Google Play. God bless.